little uh, live intro yet. I don't have my little 30 second um, intro. So we're just kind of doing a hello, everybody. We're, and we're live, uh, kind of having fun with this part where it's kind of casually transitioning in. Hello, everybody. My name is Ken Stearns. I'm the host of the JAR Foundation uh, podcast live. And we're doing this as a kind of a, a result of my regular, my JAR podcast show where it's face to face. And we sit down, I sit down with a guest and we have 444 questions about life in a big jar. And they reach in one by one and pull out these heavy questions and we share. They share their, their opinion about the question. You know, first is the definition of what it means to them, how they interpret the question. And then, you know, the answer about what, what that question means to them based on their own life experience. And I've been, you know, 200 interviews, 60 cities across the U.S. last year amazing people at the same time blown away by the struggles people have had personal struggles uh, the mental health challenges the journeys they've been through and how a lot of them have done it by themselves for so long and managed to finally and i think chuck's story today is similar in that and that somewhere along the way they find some help and they find out who they are and you know they're on that road to being coming a different person or a a better version of themselves probably is a better way to say it. Um, so today, kind of really excited. We had a you know interesting back check, uh, a yeah. little back talk with Chuck, and you know like I got a first that was kind of a wow moment there for me um, to hear your your little surprise part of the journey. And we'll get to that later. But uh, Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a guest. And um, how about a little bit about who you are and what you're doing today? Yeah, well, thank you. For for inviting me to be part of this, Ken. I uh, really appreciate sharing uh, and, and talking to a lively, lively conversationalist like yourself. So thank you. Um, so my, my name is Chuck Hall. Uh, I work professionally as a business coach and a team dynamics consultant. Um, I am uh, coming up on uh, my 40, 40th year uh, graduation from college. So I've, I've been you know, doing this for a long time. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in journalism and a master's in organizational dynamics. Um, okay. I've also recently become a certified peer specialist uh, for mental health. Um, I've had my own business since 2007, uh, married for almost 34 years uh, to my wife, Amy. I have three adult children who are 32, 29, and 24. Um, I currently live in Conyers, Georgia, which is east of Atlanta, and but I spent most of my life living in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is north of Philadelphia. Oh, so okay. that's that's the quick overview of uh, who I am and what I'm doing. I grandfather yet, or is it it's still to be determined? No, we, we have we have grand dogs. Okay. So, okay. So that's that's where we're at at now. We've got three grand dogs, uh, uh, two boys and a girl. <laughs> I love, I love, I love doggies. Um, I love doggies. Very interesting. So the, on the business side, how did you become, how did you end up becoming a business coach? This is a, cause these are really interesting roles to me. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it is kind of an interesting evolution. Um, when I first got out of college, I was planning to be a Catholic priest. So I worked for a little while in lay ministry uh, spent a year in formation with an order of priests called the Paulist Fathers. Uh, and after a year, decided that wasn't my cup of tea. 
Um, so I ended up working a little bit in social services, uh, then okay. got into corporate communications. And within corporate communications, you know, nobody knows what they're doing when they're first out of college and trying to figure out their job. I kind of took kind of a counseling or, or advising role uh, on, you know, different writing projects and working with business leaders on how to do it. I moved up into management, uh, kind of crossed over a little bit into marketing from uh, marketing or communications yeah. to marketing communications to marketing leadership. And, uh, you know, as I moved up and got more experience, I kind of became, you know, an internal consultant um, to senior leaders on communications, on business strategy on dealing with employee issues and all manner of things. Um, so when I was finally ready to start my own business, uh, consulting and coaching seemed to be a really good path for me. And it's it's been a great fit. It's That's really interesting. I, I'm thinking of you know my experience in corporate and the role of the communications team, uh, even way different from the marketing team. But that communication sits on top of the whole... I mean, everything comes through you. If it's well positioned in the company, you do start to say, hey, this message, you know, what you're saying over here doesn't line up with what they're marketing or, or this product positioning. I could see where this does lead to, yes. you really do have this idea of how to stitch stuff together and start coaching people saying, hey, you know, why is that message not aligned with this message? And if you figure that out as a, as a good executive, yeah, you're going to be a coach. Yeah, and, and Ken, that's huh. a great observation. Um, my, uh, not the highest paid, um, but the best job that I ever had in the corporate world was I was overall head of communications for a company that no longer exists. It got purchased uh, called Provident Mutual Life Insurance Company. And I started okay. there as the head of marketing communications. Then they added PR. Then they started to add like internet content. Uh, then some employee communications, crisis communications, M&A communications, strategic events. And, you know, my friends in the company at one point teased me that, um, yeah, we just got a memo from Bob, who was our CEO. And it says, anytime we want to use words, we've got to consult you first. Right. <laughs> and so it was good natured ribbing. But, you know, the fact of the matter was that we had really good integrated communications to throughout the company and yes. by working with leaders of different divisions um, of the company, trying to get those messages trewed up so that, you know, everything yeah. was going in the right direction. And, you know, when you talk about crisis communications, M&A communications, all of that's very tricky. Um, you know, and we'd have leaders who'd want to say one thing and a lawyer, you know, I'd go to him and he would say, holy cow, they can't say that. That's not even accurate. Right. Uh, so, it was, it was a great role. Um, they valued me there. And uh, I really found it to be very gratifying to be able to pull all that together. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, so I, that's funny. I was also, my reference to that, my, my comment was, I was an insurance guy for mm -hmm. 35, for 35 years. So funny that you're, you're an insurance company. And so yeah. I immediately was thinking of what it's like for my insurance comms people you know, the mm -hmm. role that they played and how they, they were literally pretty junior people, but they sat with the CEO, they sat with law legal, they went into marketing, the marketing person, they went to the product person, you mm -hmm. know, they, they were junior-ish, but they sat at the highest tables. 
because mm-hmm. they needed to get that direct, the words from that person, what they were meant to say, how they wanted to wanted to say it, and then go back and kind of come back and kind of help you understand how to say it correctly. Mm-hmm. So it lined up. Yes. Yes. And I, I will add um, that by different things that I wrote before they were released, when they were under review by like the executive vice presidents of the company, uh, from a negative point of view, I would say I catalyzed many arguments. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. From, from a positive point of view, um, I catalyzed many really good business decisions because they didn't really know what they were agreeing to until they saw it in writing. And articulated in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. So when yeah. they would see what I wrote, then they would have an, a discussion about like, are we really going to do this this way? Is this what we're really thinking? <laughs> well, and sometimes because there's meetings happen, you miss a meeting, you miss two meetings, you don't read the memo and you come back to the room and, and the, the pitch has changed slightly, the positioning's changed slightly mm-hmm. and you find out, oh, is that how we're going to position this new product? Oh. Or you probably also uncover misalignment. I think the most important role would be helping to uncover misalignment Mm -hmm. uh, within the company, within the teams, to make sure that when you do launch or when you do have a crisis or a merger, that everybody's always on the same page at the end. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal. It didn't always happen. But um, yeah, I think I I ought to uh, start writing uh, at least a series of blog posts about some of the funny experiences that happened. Um, absolutely. You know, working, working in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how, how did you end up on the kind of the mental health journey? How have you ended up in a place where, cause that's a, those are crazy yeah. roles. Yeah. Uh, those are high pressure roles. You end up in count, you end up really as a counselor, mm-hmm. you know, a business counselor in a way. So I, coaching is not just business coaching, but there's a lot of human touch. Yeah. Well, so, um, so the mental health journey, um, as a coach, I was always, um, tried to be really in tune with mental health. When I worked in social services, I worked with, um, abused and neglected teenagers and, uh, was what was called a residential counselor. Uh, I didn't live there, but but the the kids did. And so Mm -hmm. I'd go in for like a 10 or 12 hour shift work with them, kind of teach them life skills, give them an adult to talk to, kind of help ground them. And they mm-hmm. had social workers and therapists and doctors and everybody working with them. But I was just basically, you know, be a decent human being to these kids and help them develop some life skills, figure out how to get along with each other, you know, just basically keep them living. Um, and so, so, you know, I did that. Fast forward to... Um, October of 2020, and this is really really inflection point for me, was um, I almost died. So I was feeling uh, really bad health-wise. I hadn't had any form of health care in more than 20 years because I could not function in any type of health care setting. So this may sound absurd, but it was incredibly logical, logical to me at the time. I was feeling so bad. And I was visiting my mother in Pennsylvania. Um, I was really short of breath. I was feeling exhausted. Uh, You know, I had tightness in my chest. And so I went on Amazon and I bought a uh, a device to do my own EKG. 
So I did my EKG and uh, it said that I had a normal rhythm, but I had tachycardia. My uh, pulse rate was 120 rest. So then I Googled what, what could cause tachycardia and the number one reason was high blood pressure. So I went back okay. on Amazon and I ordered a blood can pressure machine. <laughs> and so that came the next day. I was able to get it overnight. And when I plugged it in, it said, you know, I think it was 199 over 149. And it was flashing hypertensive crisis. Um, so I Googled hypertensive crisis and it said you should go to the hospital immediately. Uh, I called my sister, who's a retired nurse. And she said, you definitely need to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. I could have um, told you what she would have told you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why don't you call 911? I'm like, no, I'm not going to yes. call 911. I'm at my mother's house. Uh, she was in her 80s at the time. Uh, and my daughter was there. I thought, just get Jill to drive me to the hospital. So Jill drove me to the hospital. And, uh, you know, there was my blood pressure way out of control. And uh, so anyway, I was admitted to the hospital. I was in for four days. Um, you know, they got me stabilized. Um, but one of the things that I knew, I had read some books and things and I felt I had what was described as medical phobia. And I had found some stuff on, on the internet um, and I just couldn't handle being in a medical environment. Um, you know, over time it became harder and harder. And for a wow. while I could be, you know, with somebody, my wife had uh, two rounds of cancer surgery in, in 2016 and 17, full recovery. She's in, you know, great health now. Um, but it was all I could do to stand being in the hospital with her. I mean, it took every ounce of my being to persevere to be there. But the thought of me getting any care, that was impossible. So when I got out um, of the hospital, I, you know, I followed up. Oh, while I was in the hospital, I told everybody who I came in contact with, I have a really hard time being here. Um, you know, I think I have medical phobia. So, you know, I got different reactions from, from doctors and nurses. One of the funniest was, you know, I'm laying in ICU, you know, hooked up to monitors with two IVs in me and uh, a, a new uh, cardi cardiology fellow came in, hadn't seen him before. And I told him, and he goes, oh, are you experiencing experiencing anxiety? And I said, yes, extreme anxiety. And yeah. he goes, oh, you should try yoga, right? And so the thought that went through my head was, well, if you unhook these things and get me a mat, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give it a try. But, you know, right now, I don't think I can do yoga, yeah. right? And But I didn't say that to him. Um, but you I should try found, yoga. Found one young ICU nurse overnight, when I told her, she asked a magical question and she said, what's that like for you? Um, and so she asked me to describe my, my traumatic experiences with healthcare. And she was very empathetic, very understanding, you know, obviously took good physical care of me because I, yeah. I was able to recover and get out. But when I got out of the hospital, um, it was during the pandemic. I jumped on uh, telemedicine, found a therapist, first went with him. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to be stronger. Uh, you're just afraid of going to the doctor. Uh, just make appointments and go. And I said, I haven't been able to go to the doctor in 20 years and it almost killed me. That yeah. seems a little extreme. And he goes, well, it 
is, but the answer is the same. Uh, here, uh, I'm going to, here's a link to a book. Read this book and you'll understand it. And after that, if you need to schedule another appointment with me, go ahead. So I was done with him. That was like, uh, shockingly, he, that was the last time with him. Yeah, yeah. It was the crappiest advice anybody could ever give you about mental health. You know, you're suck fine, it up. nothing's wrong with you. Yeah, suck it up, be stronger. Um, so next therapist I went to, she was really good, <laughs> diagnosed me with generalized anxiety, taught me some coping skills that made, because okay. now I've got this cardiac issue, I've got a kidney issue, I've got blood pressure that needs to be monitored. So I needed to live, I needed to be getting healthcare. Um, okay. And so um, basically, uh, she taught me some coping coping skills, but then suddenly she was no longer available. No explanation. Just when I went to schedule my next appointment, it said she's not available, pick somebody else. So I felt like I was making progress with her. I reached out to her over like two to three weeks, got zero response. So I had to pick another person, mm -hmm. found this other guy. Um, and in our first session, he said, there's a heck of a lot more going on here than generalized anxiety. I have some ideas. Um, I want to do some research and I, I'll talk to you again when we meet next week. So next week, he said to me, I want to ask you some questions and just play along with me, even though they might not make any sense. So he asked me a series of questions. One of them, and I won't go through all of them, was um, what day of the week do you like to go grocery shopping and where do you park? And I said, Monday or Tuesday morning, as early as possible. I definitely don't park near the entrance. I park pretty far away. And as long as I can get a spot next to one of those cart corrals where you put your cart back, I do that so I can get, get in, get out, get my groceries in the car and leave as fast as possible. So then he revealed to me, he goes, I work with a lot of veterans with PTSD and you've answered all these questions exactly like veterans with PTSD. And he goes, I think you have something that most people don't know about called medical PTSD. Um, and he said, this very astute guy, he said, now, I think you're the kind of person who's not going to believe what I say, unless you come to your own conclusion. Um, so he said, you seem like that guy, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, here's a link to an article. I want you to read it and then discuss it with me the next time we get together. So the article was about medical PTSD. I read it and I just went, holy cow, this explains it. And with my second therapist, she got really close to my diagnosis. Yeah. And um, I created an Excel file called uh, My Traumatic Events. And at that point, I, I'm now up to like 38 or 39 things, but I started in chronological order, putting things happened to me starting from childhood that um, I considered traumatic with um, either um, dental care, uh, uh, medical care, injuries that needed medical care, uh, and things like that. And I literally, I told her I labeled this as my traumatic events, but she never connected it to PTSD. So he did. Uh, and he, you know, he's my therapist now, uh, you know, more than a year later, he's, he's just been amazing to work with. But um, you know, in unpacking all of this, um, you know, it, it really helped me to put a lot of things in context. Um, it's helped me understand why I behave certain ways, 
um, like one of my PTSD. Um, and by the way, there's something in, in mental health where as a kid, my parents always used to say to me, and a lot of parents of my generation probably said this, um, what's wrong with you? Right. And so that's the way people often tend to think about mental health. What's wrong with you? The real question is what happened to you? Because um, avoiding healthcare environments where I was injured from childhood and where I was further traumatized as an adult, that's a survival behavior, right? I'm yes, avoiding yeah, yeah. the place where I was hurt. Yeah. Um, hypervigilance is another PTSD trait. And, and I, I find this funny now, um, and it's not funny when you're going through it, but every time I was in the grocery store and why I liked going so early when there were a few people in the store is every time I would turn a corner in the store or if there was somebody in the, that aisle, I was hypervigilant and the thought went through my head, if they attacked me, could I take them, right? And, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a brawler. I mean, the last time I was in a physical fight was, you know, when somebody attacked me in college and I had to defend myself, you know, at 19 years old. Um, but that was the thought that went through my head. And if it was a little old lady, I was like, okay, I'm fine. I got her. You know, yeah, I got her. person who looked like they could be an adversary, uh, it, it really jacked up my adrenaline um, because of that. So, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of, um, traits that I suddenly understood with PTSD. So Ken, Interesting. That's, not, that's not all the story with mental yeah. health for me because during my first meeting with my very astute therapist, he said to me, have you ever been tested for being on the autism spectrum? And I was like, no. He said, have you ever done any like tests on your own? And I said, I did a couple of quizzes, you know, some years ago that I found online and you know the results were kind of like yeah probably not you know maybe but probably not and he said but why he said, but, but yeah so let me ask you Chuck why did you take the test why would you self-test because I think for listeners anybody listening to this show later um well you know why, since, what would cause you to I, I since have learned that anybody who self-tests is probably autistic <laughs> 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 because I think it was because um you know, I've always felt like I see the world differently than other people. I think my brain is different than most other people. And I've always kind of felt that way. And I, I tend to be a pretty introspective person, um, which is often another autistic trait. But, you know, so, so I guess I stumbled upon these things okay. somewhere. And uh, that was years before. So as a coach, I've had several clients who are autistic and have shared that with me and others who I've suspected are autistic. Um, but, you know, I was able to work with them and understand them and uh, provide support. So I considered myself uh, an ally. And I went from, you know, if you remember the show uh, Minions, I went from ally to uh, to one of us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, way I the way I look at it, you know, the Minions going one of us, one of us. OK, but, sorry. So back to the doctor. Yeah. What how do you got yeah. you? So he so he sniffed it out. Yeah. In, in our very first meeting. So. Uh, huh. You know, I said, look, I'm really interested in this medical stuff. I'm not really interested in talking about that other stuff. And he was like, okay, fine. Um, through social media, and I'll give a shout out to, to her, um, I, I've become friends with an amazing person, Alex Pearson, 
who has been, she, she got her autism diagnosis in her uh, mid-20s. And she um, shared a lot. Believe it or not, I found her on TikTok at first, doing TikTok videos about adults diagnosed with autism. And then I connected with her on LinkedIn. And she recommended a website where you could go and do autism self-tests with um, interpretations by a psychologist, how to understand your scores and whether, you know, that means, you, you know, you're, you're more likely or less likely to be autistic. Mm. It does not qualify as a professional diagnosis. And we could go down a rabbit hole of self-diagnosed versus professional diagnosed autism. Um, but when I, first time I met with Alex, before I was meeting with Alex for the first time, um, I went ahead and I did these tests. I wanted to be able to refer autistic clients to her um, okay. because she's, she's got a master's in psychology and uh, oh, as I like great. to say, <laughs> understands so you, autism. You took, the te- you took the test so you could refer other people to the test. Yes, because I wanted, I wanted to experience it, right? And, <laughs> but then uh, you found out something. Yes, I found out I was over threshold, meaning that I was likely to be autistic on pretty much all the tests. So when Alex and I finally had our first Zoom call, I shared with her and um, Alex was like clapping her hands and, you know, bouncing up and down in her seat saying, you know, I knew it, I knew it. As soon as we started talking, you know, I, I knew that you're autistic too. So I took that act to my therapist the next week. And uh, I said to him, I said, hey, I wanna talk to you. When we first met, you brought up autism. He said, yes. I said, well, I just did this series of tests, explained to him. He goes, what tests? I told him the tests. What are your scores? I told him the scores. And he said, congratulations, you're unequivocally autistic. And I said, well, do I need to do more testing? He goes, no, all those tests are valid. Um, I've known it since the first time we talked. Uh, I said, well, why didn't you bring it up again? He goes, because you said you wanted to focus on the medical stuff. And that's what we've been doing. We we got back around to it. so, you know, he's been a wonderful guide and, and uh, meeting many other uh, adults diagnosed with autism um, has, you know, really been wonderful. You know, we help each other and uh, help understand each other. There's a uh, Discord uh, channel that I haven't been as active on in recent months for uh, adults diagnosed with autism. And, you know, one of the things that um, autistic people often do is called stimming. So, you know, kind of the stereotype, and you'll see this more in children because children don't know to mask or hide their stimming as much. You know, the, the classic thing is, you know, waving your arms or flapping your arms, right, is, is you know, an autistic, can be an autistic stimming trait. Um, I had a number of those when I was a child, never that, um, but I had a lot of annoying things that other people kind of socialized out of me. But those um, behaviors help kind of soothe those of us who use them and help us calm down. One of my really bad ones, which which I went all through college, and it wasn't until I got in my first job that I was sharing an office with a a woman, and she was like, you've got to stop that. You're, You're driving me crazy. When I was thinking deep in thought, I would sit with a pen and go, constantly. Like I could do that for like 10 minutes, not even hearing it, but just the clicking was soothing to me. 
Um, you know, bouncing my leg, shaking my foot, uh, all kinds of things. People always would say, can't you sit still? And I would say, no, I can't sit still. Um, so, um, so there's so much unpacking that I've had to do with learning as an adult that I'm autistic. I'd love to make sure we get these, um, some of the notes. So we'll, the show will go live and, and, and this will be pretty packed. Um, but we're gonna put this on the Apple up on Apple and Spotify. And I want to make sure we get the notes. Maybe later you can send me some of the links that you've got. Yeah. Any resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, so Ken, one one of the things after I made all this progress with my therapist, he said to me, look, you're a coach. You've really been making a lot of progress, you know, on your PTSD uh, with, with autism. Um, Have you given any thought to how you can help us? other people. And I said, yeah, I said, in fact, you know, I'm doing some work to incorporate more of this into my coaching. And he goes, well, how about volunteering to help other people with their, their mental health? So I said, well, I don't, I don't have any training to do that. So I'm not really comfortable doing that. And he goes, he goes, just jump in. You'll be fine. I said, no, I won't. So that's not you. That's not Chuck. So I discovered training. I didn't know this existed. Um, and it exists in most states in the United States, is it's called a certified peer specialist for mental health. And in Georgia, where I live, it involves about uh, um, two weeks of training um, where you learn about how to be a peer to support other people going through uh, mental health recovery. Hmm. Um, so they teach you know, various skills and uh, approaches and things for you to do. And then after you finish the training, you have to sit for a written and an oral exam. And then once you pass, you're a certified peer specialist for mental health. Um, You can work full time doing that if you wish. Um, And basically, a certified peer specialist is, I love this term that I learned from another highly experienced certified peer specialist. You are a dealer of hope Um, because basically what what you're saying to other other people, you're not a therapist, you're not a social worker, you're saying I'm a person just like you, I've had some yeah. mental health challenges, I am navigating my way through this, I'm going to manage this for the rest of my life. But you know, like there was an old book, in, you know, in the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay. And you know, it's, I would paraphrase it to I'm going to be okay, and you're going to be okay, too. So that's the first thing that a certified peer specialist does. The other thing is just to demonstrate compassion, right? So, you know, I had people, as I couldn't tolerate healthcare, I had various people say to me, you know, oh, you're a baby. Um, Oh, men are chicken. They don't like doctors. If you had to go through what a woman did, you know, with childbirth, you know, you'd probably die. And I would like, yeah, I would rather die. Yeah, yeah, for you, you'd rather die. Right. I came close. I, you know, I managed to beat it. And then finally, a peer specialist, certified peer specialist can help people develop different skills, you know, goal setting, um, how to like take one step Mm -hmm. ahead, how to advocate for yourself. A lot of times people who are experiencing mental health challenges feel weak and unsure. And they've, we've got these experts with degrees who kind of say, okay, this is what you need to do. Uh, this is what you have, or this is the condition, you know, you need to do this. Well, the reality is each one of us is an expert in our own lives 
and in our own bodies, yeah. our own minds, right? So when we're talking to a therapist, there are two experts in the room. They're experts by their education and experience. We're experts by living in our, in our own bodies, our own minds. Um, and so teaching people self-advocacy is a huge skill that comes along with being a certified peer specialist. It's a, a, you've got an amazing journey and it seems like you're kind of at the beginning of like, like your journey up to that point, finding out, discovering that you had autism and kind of sorting out that, that PTSD part. And all of a sudden now you're on this, you've got this whole other life ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, it really, um, thank you. Thank you for recognizing that because it really is a demarcation point. Yeah. And, I can feel it. I can uh, feel it. You know, so, uh, and my, my life has completely changed. I think I'm, I'm a better coach. I'm a better consultant. For sure. Uh, I, and that's what I do with most of my time. I work part-time um, just getting started with a community mental health organization as a certified peer specialist but I'm um, talking with a lot of people informally um, and there's, you know, there's, there's kind of a theme to, to, um, to what I'm trying to help people understand. Um, mm. and, and, and it is this, and I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share this is that every one of us is, is likely experiencing experience some form of mental health crisis during our life or some Absolutely. mental health challenge. It might be very minor and it might pass quickly. It might be severe. Um, it, you know, it could be intense depression. Someone might need hospitalization yep. or medication or, 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 you know, really strong intervention. Um, there's a lot of stuff people go through. But the, the takeaway for me is that we can be living with a mental health challenge and not even really be aware of how much it's affecting us, affecting mm. our health, our mental health, um, affecting our potential. Um, and, and, and the and people really, around us, right? Yeah, it can be holding us back tremendously. Yeah. And so um, I was just in a, um, in a program yesterday where I was a participant, and there was a panel of mental health experts um, who, you know, who were being, um, they gave a brief presentation, then asked questions. One, one person in the audience asked, you know, how do we know if somebody's having a mental health crisis and what should we do about it? And so they literally answered the question. My answer would have been a little different. Okay. We all need to be aware of our mental health all the time and be aware of the mental health of those around us. You know, it's, it's yes. kind of a cliche, but it's true. The whole thing, no one knows what anyone else is going through. Um, and so the kinder we can be to people, the more curious we can be in asking questions of people versus judging mm -hmm. them. Uh, and the way we can try to be of service and, and help people rather than, you know, being, being demanding or forceful with them, you know, we'll all be much better if we can just look at that and realize that anybody could be going through anything at any, any given moment. And maybe they're not being their best selves, but maybe we can be our better selves by helping them. Yeah. I, that's one thing I've like we shared before I started, you know, just how surprised I am that how everybody I've met and shared their stories um, some at some point them or somebody really close to them, real mental health crisis and how they and it's not your story is not dissimilar, you know, kind of 
kind of finding somehow navigating through and finding it out and then what you do with the discovery of it and that information and how you go forward. You know, this is yours. A, yours is a great story. And, and I like what you're doing with it. I mean, I love what you're doing with it, which is embracing it, not kind of saying, oh, that's not me. I come, I'm not autistic. It's like, OK, now what do we do? What do I do with that information? And now you're, you know, the peer, the peer coaching. Um, great. That's an amazing step. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ken. You bring up a really good point. Um, so, so I have been um, accused is probably a strong word, but I've been called out mm. for, you know, oh, you're being too positive about your autism. You're be being too positive about PTSD. You know, oh no, there can be bad days at any moment. <laughs> um, there are, so something I learned from my therapist, um, you know, he suggested that uh, because he's a veteran, he's like, there are a lot of veteran groups that would, would you know, really appreciate, you know, your support. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, I haven't been through anything compared to what, you know, yeah, veterans yeah. have been through. And he was like, if you sit in a room full of veterans with PTSD, everyone will think that everyone else has had it worse than they have. Um, and that's one of the things, <laughs> right? That, you know, so, so people can get into, I actually learned this before I knew I had PTSD, but people often think like, oh, I'm not as bad off as so-and-so is yeah, yeah. or oh, what they've been through is worse than I've been through. Yes. But we all do that. Um, and with, with autism, I have looked at it and I said, you know, well, maybe I'm not really autistic. Um, I've talked to yeah. other autistic people who have said, um, you know, I, I really don't think I'm autistic, um, but that's what the tests say. Um, you know, there's one person who is a friend of mine who 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 has um, who as soon as I got my diagnosis, I started thinking about people I know who I think are likely to be autistic. She was the first person who popped into my mind. We've had multiple conversations and she is like, no, I'm not autistic. I'm just introverted and extremely intelligent. And I'm like, OK, um, you know, you can't I can't diagnose anybody else. Yeah. I can't, you know, move anybody else. But um, but there are moments of doubt, hmm. right? There are I'm sure. Then, you know, like, oh, you know, this doesn't this doesn't seem real. And then I go back and I, I process my life, and I'm like, yeah, it is real. What an interesting journey. Um, we're at a good spot to we're a good spot to kind of say what what else you want to leave the audience with. I mean, this has been. I mean, before I kind of throw it back to you, one is I'm interested to take the test. You know, mm -hmm. I, that sounds, it just sounds like me in so many ways. Um, even the medical trauma, <laughs> even yeah. like I didn't have any manifestations, but I do like to park my car far away from, in the back. I am prefer a good exit. Um, yeah. I am, I'm pretty vigilant uh, as well, yeah. but I don't have the feelings of, of fear turning the corner. Um, but I think it'd be, I'm sure there's people that it would resonate with. Um, yeah. So for well, sure, yeah, I want to take that test. Yeah, well, so um, so first with PTSD, um, there are a lot of things that we as lay people don't realize um, can be linked to PTSD. Hmm. Um, so after my therapist and I were working and agreed upon the medical PTSD diagnosis, I started to think about some other things. And, you know, I casually mentioned that I was in what could have been a horrific car crash 
Um, I basically, my car was destroyed uh, on a highway by a truck driver who fell asleep and just like left his lane and smashed into the side of my car, spun my car around, T-boned me uh, and pushed me down the highway. And there was literally zero doubt. I just very matter of fact, my thought was, oh, okay, so this is how I die, right? While, it's, happen- just, while it was, it's happening, yeah. Yeah, while it was happening. And, and you know, they say that time slows down. Time did slow down. I saw my driver's side window break in slow motion, um, you know, and then, you know, the glass kind of exploded. Yeah, I yeah. closed my eye. I had, um, had uh, cuts on the side, like superficial cuts on the side of my forehead from the glass hitting me, but I closed my eyes in because everything was in such slow motion. Um, But I walked away from that with scratches and my therapist said, okay, that one event could give you a lifetime of PTSD. Yes. Um, So, you know, so, so it's really good to kind of learn about PTSD and reflect on it. There's also something that a lot of us, um, there's a study called ACEs, which is um, childhood traumatic experiences. Um, And so you can Google, you know, ACEs quiz. Um, If you put ACEs quiz in NPR, it gives you an article and a link to the quiz. Mm. And you can look back on your childhood. Um, And so uh, part of me being an autistic child was I interpreted different events differently. And I had, you know, a lot of what was considered bad behavior because I was overstimulated and uh, I got injured um, as a child because I didn't pay attention or I didn't believe like my father had a car repair business and I was, um, he welded a big piece of steel. I was like four years old, uh, maybe three years old. I was young and he walked away and said, don't touch that. Well, the first thing I did was I went over and touched it and, you know, I had you know, serious burns, not third degree burns, but serious burns on on my hand, had to go to the hospital. It was painful. You know, back then they did what you, you, they don't do now. They slathered my hand in some type of burn ointment and bandaged everything on burns probably got worse and more painful. Um, But, um, but anyway, so I, I had a lot of experiences as a child that PTSD So that's one of the things like we may not even be aware that experiences were traumatic because we adapted and moved on, but they don't go away. They're buried and they harm us. So Hmm. yeah, that's one thing. And I can, I can share with you afterwards, the link to an article on uh, medical PTSD on autism. There's a website called embrace hyphen autism.com and there are a series of free tests on embrace-autism.com that um, you can do and it will give you some insights. Now, this does not replace getting a professional diagnosis if you want to do that, but it will give you um, good insights. And there are some people who... um, do not want a professional diagnosis in their medical records. Um, they're, you know, they may be concerned for employment Understood. or discrimination. Right. Um, there may be uh, visa issues in some countries. 
uh, or residency issues in some countries where they don't want, uh, you know, an autistic person moving in, even yeah, though yeah. the person may be brilliant, they may be have backwards thinking. They're like, oh, this person's going to be a drain on our healthcare system. Yeah, sure. You know, they're gonna, they're, we're going to have to support them because it's a, it's considered a disability, right? Being autistic is considered a disability. Um, the uh, DSM-5 psychiatric manual or psychological manual considers autism to be autism spectrum disorder, meaning that there's something wrong with you. Um, a, dis a disorder. It is a disorder. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, Ken, a funny, funny story is when I told uh, my dental hygienist when, you know, any update in your medical records, I said, yes, um, I'm on the the autism spectrum. And she said, Oh my gosh, you're, you're very high functioning. And the thought that went through my head was, uh, yes, I've had my own business since 2007, you know, <laughs> after a successful corporate career, you know, I've got an Ivy league master's degree. I've got three wonderful children. I own my house. You know, my wife and I have been married for over 30 years. Yeah. I'm pretty high functioning. I didn't say any of this, but I'm thinking how high functioning are you? Right. Should we compare functioning level? Oh so, God, um, that's a weird, yeah, a weird, a lot uh, of, a lot of stigma, a lot of misunderstandings around autism. Um, two websites that are not online yet, but if people, if anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, um, I'm okay. happy to talk to people one-on-one -on -one about autism or PTSD. Um, I'm easily findable on LinkedIn, Chuck Hall. Uh, and my email is Chuck at ChuckEmail.com. I'm happy mm. to put that out there. Um, and two websites they're coming. One is on medical PTSD. I'm part of a working group putting information out to help people understand medical PTSD. And then I'm also um, spinning up a website called Autistics Among Us that highlights people like me who are autistic but living in the world, uh, having having great lives. And uh, most people, you know, have stereotypes about autistic people and I'm not the stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, great. I mean, a great conversation and much needed. And, and I think, you know, part of what we're trying to do with this, this show is to remove some of the stigmatism, um, you know, mental, the, one of the biggest issues, you know, as you may know, for people seeking out men, mental health uh, help, as you kind of alluded to is the stigmatism that gets attached to it. And and I even forgot about the fact that it's it's a record and it's a dis it's a it's a illness, and the other parts about the international part. I mean, those are all parts I, I've I've kind of forgotten about. Um, so it is. I mean, the stigma is not just amongst your own self. Like you said, people don't even want to have their own recognition, stigmatizing themselves as somebody they wouldn't mm -hmm. want to be labeled as, but mm -hmm. also how that how that impacts, you know, your the worldview of you. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, sitting there with a hygienist looking at you and making a judgment on you as being a human and how you're doing in mm -hmm. life, kind of bananas. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really appreciative of you being so open and sharing. Um, this is a long way to, to what we're trying to do. And, and I think kind of getting these resources together in one place. Is fantastic. I, again, yeah. thanks, Chuck, so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks to everybody for that's watched. Thank you for the opportunity, Ken. And again, nobody needs to hide. 
you know, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, Star Trek always said space is the final frontier. It's not. Our own minds are the final frontier. That's, and the only one that matters. The only one Absolutely. that matters. Everything in our own mind, people. Again, Chuck, thanks Great. so much. Thanks, everybody. And thanks for the random one and two watchers that we had on the show. I don't know if you've got that little symbol in, up, up on top, but we uh, we even got a heart. I mean, that might be the first heart we ever got um, <laughs> on the show. So I owe that to you, Chuck. Thanks. You know, it resonated. Your story resonated with somebody. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you Ken. Yeah. Okay, let me let me find a little exit. I'll try to kind of gracefully exit us out. Hang on for a quick minute. Let's have a, a, a post chat in the green room. Okay. Thanks, everybody.